Welcome to Past, Present, and Future You, a podcast brought to you by Kensho Education. My name is Anthony, and today's guest is Matthew Rausch. Matthew, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk a little about your personal transformation, who you used to be, who you are right now, and who you're trying to become. So can you tell us a little about yourself as it pertains to our conversation today? Sure. Well, as most people, it's an ongoing change. Um, there is uh, a couple milestones in my life that um, that were the true changing points. Um, uh, the first, the first would be um, probably moving out of the house, going to college. The second being uh, getting sober, um, and the third, managing my depression about 10 years ago. So there's three milestones. Um, and each stage probably takes on a different personality. There is a, a personality of a, a rambunctious hellraiser um, up through college, just rebelling against uh, my father and uh, the shit that came with that. Um, then came the alcohol and drugs. And the years of that usage and getting angrier and sadder and not dealing with any of the issues that... that may have caused or part of part of the reason that was caused in the first place um, and then getting sober but not getting completely healthy mm-hmm. for a number of years um, and then uh, realizing in my 30s that I wasn't going to live forever and the things that were happening in my life seemed to happen in cycles um, so it's interesting we're doing this in the middle of March um, I had uh, a few losses, a few depressing things happened in, in the spring in my life. Um, so the cycle of my depression is actually in the spring, and, and we're in the midst of it right now. Um, so working through that 10 years ago um, was the next milestone. So what, I'm, what I attempted to do for the last five to six years since I've been in Arizona, I moved here six years ago, is become a more calm, mindful Person, um, I moved away from the corporate world, which was which allowed me to to not jam things into boxes or Excel cells. Um, everything is gray, and you'd think I would have that skill set as an HR professional, um, but dealing with my own life, it wasn't like that. So dealing with work or my profession and dealing with life were two different things for me. Okay, so. Can you tell us a little more about the person that you used to be? I suppose you could start in the the earliest of the three transition stages and um, talk a little about why you felt the need to change, whether someone forced that change on you, whether there was a cost to uh, being who you once were, and um, just some of the early stuff setting the stage for the present you, the who you've become. Okay. So there's a number of items there that you listed. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, The drinking began when I was 16. I didn't even have a drink until I was 16, actually. Um, My father's an alcoholic. His sister's an alcoholic. I have another brother who's an alcoholic. Two cousins. Um... And pretty much, I have five siblings. 
pretty much everyone in the family except my older brother um, has completely given up alcohol for different reasons. Um, myself and my two brothers were abused by my father um, while he was drinking, physically, mentally. Um, he stopped drinking uh, when I was 13. That was the last time he hit me. And I blocked it all out. I had a blackout of probably four years in elementary school. Um, and all this came to light when I went to college. Um, so I went to college in 1987. Um, started off, matter of fact, my first, my first task when I got to college was to go down to the local store and buy a, a case of natural light. So it was. <laughs> I remember it clearly. And a pack of Marlboros. Pack of Marlboros was a dollar eighty-seven. Um, and I started. I was free of my home and free of any constraints that were outside of my own sensibilities. <laughs> um, and over the next four years, um, I was arrested four times in college. Um, was on probation actually three of the four years I was in college. <laughs> Wow. Um, undergrad. And was just, my nickname was Lucifer in college. I went to a small uh, private college um, that I stood out clearly. Um, I had brothers that went to large state universities, and uh, I'm absolutely certain I wouldn't have survived going to one of those. Um, at least I was contained within a hundred acre campus for the most part. I could d do a lot of destruction in there, which I did, but. And you mean that literally you wouldn't have survived. Literally not, would not have survived. Not a metaphorical. I wouldn't have passed. I wouldn't have done this. Correct. I, yeah, it's not a metaphor that I use actually. Um, I don't use uh, metaphors like this is killing me or, or I'm going to kill that person. I, I take the phrase extremely seriously for a lot of reasons, but yes, I would have died <laughs> if I went to Michigan State. Um, so when I was a freshman in college, um, I had a friend of mine drag me to an Al-Anon meeting, um, and it was uh, specifically for adult children of alcoholics. And in this meeting, um, so it was in the winter of my freshman year, um, her name is Kirsten that brought me to this and I went with her because we at least bonded on we both had fathers and similar backgrounds uh, so we we bonded on that on a, on a relationship level uh, but when I went to this um, all those blackout times it was like this shade was being lifted off them and I could see my father kicking me or hitting me um, and within 45 minutes of a, an hour meeting, I was, I was in a fetal position, um, just inconsolable, and I couldn't understand all of this came flooding back. Um, and I uh, was, uh, it, I was so shocked um, and saddened and disappointed um, in myself, in my father, in where I was in life at the age of 18 that I just shut it down. I just blocked it all out again. I somehow created this wall in my mind and from that meeting um, I didn't do anything about it and I just uh, 
pressed hard forward in I was that was a, a B student um, kept that up while I was rampaging the campus um, by the time I was a junior uh, I was an RA and but the drinking didn't stop and any alcohol that I confiscated uh, would most likely make it down my gullet as opposed to dis disposing of it as I was supposed to do uh, my first semester of my senior year, um, I was on duty and I was caught with alcohol three times. Somehow they let that happen three times. And the third time, they were actually going to discipline me and I quit the job. Um, my brother was actually with me the third time, my oldest brother. And um, I felt like the world was against me. What difference does it make? What I do? You know, the normal shit that comes with alcoholism. Um, graduated on time. Got a job right away. Um, I don't know how. Um, I had a record. Uh, I know two of the three uh, arrests were expunged because of my age, uh, but the third was there. Um, and I got hired in a bank, oddly enough. Um, and what was awesome about the bank is I'm a 22-year-old in a loan department with a bunch of 30-year-old women who like to party. So it continued wholeheartedly. The weed I got, I got from my boss. I mean, it was, the first year was nonstop, year and a half. Um, and I was living with somebody at the time and uh, we were engaged. And um, I went to Michigan State as a, on a reunion party with my brother, which we had gone to many times over the years. Um, and blacked out about 10 o'clock in the evening and, and woke up in jail in East Lansing. And that was the last drink I had for a number of reasons. Um, the first was... Uh, well, hang on. Before you go there, tell me how much you drank. I mean, it's one thing to say all the alcohol that was confiscated, but you've told me before, these are absurd quantities of alcohol. So what, what would you typically drink in an evening? Well, I would leave the bank um, and I'd pick up a 6 or a 12-pack, whichever I had money for on the way home. Um, and I had a 15 to 20-minute drive home. And it, it was a 6-pack. I'd drink it all uh, by the time I got home. Um, and then I could, because then it was after 5 o'clock, I could then drive back into the little town I lived by uh, outside of Detroit and write a check for another case and I would drink 20 to 30 beers every day um, and that didn't include going out with the co-workers that I had um, and things started happening physically too my kidneys always ached I had uh, numbness in my fingertips there's a lot of things that came with that and you can imagine the intestinal issues that come with that uh, but I was young and strong, and um, this is the way that I wanted to live when I was drinking. When I woke up in the morning, I, I can't think or count off the top of my head how many times I looked in the mirror in the morning um, in that apartment by myself and said, uh, you need help. I had told myself I was an alcoholic for a long time by myself, but I would deny it. With anybody else who and it was clear I mean even my sisters were begging me to do something um, because when I got 
when I went to family gatherings, I would drink six, eight, ten beers, and there wouldn't be a change in my personality. And they were knew enough about tolerance that they were highly concerned. Um, so you're saying literally 20 to 30 beers every day, f- five to seven days a week. Yeah. A, a light night would be a 12-pack for sure. And that was when I decided not to drink. Because sometimes about you know noon or one, when, I, when the hangover starts wearing off, you think, well, maybe I can just make it. And on the way home, I'd buy beer. It, it was like, um, well, it's an addiction, um, but there's so much, there's, there's mental things about an addiction that are um, overpowering. Um, so when I woke up in jail, I still had to be to work on Monday. This was a Friday night. Um, my brother couldn't bail me out. They wanted to keep me. Was this the the last time you went to jail? This was August 22, 1992. Yep. And how how many times had you been to jail? Including Four. This is your fourth time? Fourth time. Okay. In three different cities. Um, so I uh, had a good friend at work. Uh, she was probably 65 at the time. I knew she was sober. She watched me. I didn't know that, but she had watched me as this young man um, who she connected with uh, on a personal level. Um, I must have smelled like alcohol all the time. Um, when you say you knew she was sober, she had previously been an alcoholic. Is that the implication? Yes, she was a recovered alcoholic, uh, and it was well known. She spoke of it all the time because uh, she was an abused wife. Her son died of alcoholism um, while I knew her. Um, and it was, uh, she was one of those people that lived in a small town who had the reputation of being the town drunk. Um, Maddox showed up her house several times when she didn't show up for something and had to revive her and take her to the hospital. And so she had been sober about 10 years by the time I knew her. Um, and I went and sat down by Barb that Monday morning. I got to work at 8 o'clock or whatever and sat down next to her and said, Barb, I think I have a problem. And she said, if you think you do, you do. And what are you doing at 1130? And I said, I don't know. You know, I've got this and this. And she said, I'll tell you what you're doing at 1130. You're coming with me. And she brought me into town in Brighton, um, brought me to my first AA meeting. They all knew her. Um, and she ended up being my sponsor. She was my sponsor for, well, until her death um, in 2004. Um, so the not drinking um, was removed. The habits that I had, you know, you smoke, you, you smoke when you drink, uh, you drink when you drive home. All the times that the reasons were to drink, I had to break those habits as well. And uh, when you look at AA, there's some folks, my brother-in-law is actually dealing with this right now. He's going to AA for the first time um, in the last couple months, and he's, he's struggling with the higher power issue of there's something. He, 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 feels like, he feels like he needs to believe in God, and he's an atheist, in order to get healthy through AA, get sober through AA. Um, and that's not the case. You take, and this was, was Barb's, Barb is also, also an atheist, um, you take what you can use and you leave the rest. That's the way each meeting is. And there's, I still go to them weekly. I go to them Thursday nights, um, 25 years later. Uh, they've brought a ton to my life. Uh, I went through rehab in Lansing. 
in 92. Um, had to take, you know, 30 days off work. And uh, nobody knew that at work. Nobody, they just realized as I attended company functions that I wasn't drinking and I could hear whispering over the next <laughs> several months. Matt doesn't have a beer in his hand. <clears throat> so that, that was a, a great transformation to remove the alcohol from my system. Um, however, um, all the things that come with it, the anger, the sadness, the depression, the, the reasons why you felt you had to drink, it, it is ultimately, in my instance anyway, they were, it, it was a form of suicide, just a slow suicide. Um, that's what I've come to understand through many counselors over the years. And I didn't know why I wanted to die. I didn't know why I wasn't worth that. And it all comes down to um, I was never worth it at home. That's you know that's the way I was raised. You are um, you are in the way. Um, you're a child, and yet a 180 pound strong German man can can knock you around like you're um, like you're a rag doll. There's a lot of value that, that you lose as a human um, when that's ingrained in your system, when that's ingrained in your, your upbringing. Um, so these are things I couldn't talk about even 10 years ago. I couldn't talk openly about this because I still hadn't dealt with all of that. So I was sober, and I was still a little bit crazy and loud and gregarious, but um, I was an asshole still. The asshole stayed with me. That, that wasn't removed, so I was mean. Um, and as I grew, went through the company ladder, realized banking was a bunch of Republicans and I couldn't handle it, um, I left and went to grad school, got a job in the temp industry after grad school, and, and as I rose through the ranks, um, I just became meaner and meaner. And it, my... <laughs> so-called success um, was driven you know, through others on top of others. There weren't relationships at work. Um, these were people who do what I tell them to do and therefore we'll get things done as a team and I'll get rewarded and get promoted. And that's how I worked for the next 10, 11 years. Um, so that entire decade from probably 95, 96 after grad school through 2007, 2008 was all me. It was all selfishness. Selfishness. Um, it was everything that happened in the relationships had to be about me. Um, so the, the, I didn't have the cognizance yet that this one addiction is Yes, it's a disease, but is also for me it was a symptom that there's other shit, there's other things, and if you have uh, what can be called an addictive personality, then you are drawn to things and you attach to them, and that can be power, that can be gambling, it can be smoking, it whatever you you think can be a habit, um, working, um, you can become addicted to it, and if you have that that trait that's somewhere in your DNA that tells you, yes, you are an addict of whatever, um, I believe that it removes the barriers to, to all these other so-called possible addictions that can, 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 can come up. How far did you go in your career during this time? 
Um, well, I started as a recruiter uh, in an office in Duluth, Minnesota, and uh, 10 years later, I was the vice president of operations over uh, 11 states in the Midwest, managed about $300 million in sales, um, traveled five or six days a week, um, had numerous reports, one in each state, but there was 22 offices that I managed. Um, Made a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot of money, um, and I spent a lot of money uh, because it was important to look the part for me. Um, had to have a nice car and nice clothes and nice audio equipment and whatever else. Uh, and it didn't matter. It didn't, I didn't care about others enough to um, recognize that, for the most part, people see through that. Um, I would... I would hold on with two hands to the compliments that I received in my success and completely disregard any criticism, however constructive it may be presented. So I figured, so I, I was also married during this time. Uh, I was married from the time I was graduated from grad school until 2004, 2005. And that marriage dissolved because I worked, it was all mine. It was, I worked my way out of it, essentially. Um, she never saw me. When she saw me on the weekends, she was angry because I wasn't there the other part of the time. And she was trying to deal with her own depression, and we didn't talk about that. So she was trying to manage these things by herself at this big house we had in Minnesota. Um, so I fell into this funk. Um, and I figured, well, if I just get rid of that job, then everything will be fine. So I quit the company that I had been with for now 11 years um, and took a job at a smaller company in Ohio, and I moved to Ohio. Um, and it didn't, it wasn't the job. <laughs> it was me. And I did this for the next year and a half, and I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen the the that movie with George Clooney, <clears throat> the one where he travels and fires people. Travels and fires people. That was that was what I did. Up in the air. Up in the air. I did that for two years, um, and I would cry every day. <laughs> I didn't know why. It was. It turns out it was a familiar spot for me to be. Depression was a familiar spot, um, and. Nobody saw that at work. I was the same dick at work that I had been for the prior decade. It was just a different place. Um, and removed myself from my family. I wasn't talking to anyone. I didn't want anybody to see me the way that I was. Um, I could put on a show for 8 to 12 hours a day and then just fall into this uh, horrific depression um, for whatever, whenever I wasn't in front of people. Um, and then of course the thoughts of suicide. And I had a, I had a small dog when my first wife and I, um, got divorced. I got the two dogs. Um, one had passed in the spring, shockingly. And I had the other one and she was with me <laughs> almost every minute of every day. Um, I took her everywhere. She was my lifeline to life. And then as she got older, 11, 12, I was thinking, okay, there's no way that I can deal with that. So 
I should come up with some way that we could die in a car accident. I mean, I had these plans where it would end. Sumatra was her name, and Sumatra and I would go out together. Um, and uh, then she passed, and I was crushed. Um, and I don't know how I survived, actually. Um, I don't really understand um, what took place. I moved back to Chicago, um, and without Sumatra, it was uh, a different place, a strange place. Um, and it, was, it was new and yet familiar. Um, went to AA meetings four or five times a week. Would cry. Um, it was <laughs> it was bizarre. Somehow, after so many times of walking over the Columbus Bridge and thinking, oh, I could just fall off this bridge so easily, and it would just be done. I just didn't want people to know that I killed myself. I couldn't have my mom deal with that, that he killed himself. Uh, that's probably the only reason um, I got in front of a psychiatrist. And I truly don't remember the caveat. Uh, her name was Dr. Shore. And... She put me on Lexapro that day um, that I saw her. Um, I remember the look on her face as I was talking to her. I hadn't been to a counselor in years. Um, and she was only two or three doors down from me in Chicago. Um, but I remember the look on her face. I was only, only there five, ten minutes. And uh, left with the sample and then went to the Walgreens, which was between me and in her office it's amazing how everything was so convenient um, like it was placed there mm -hmm. um, and started on this Lexapro which essentially put me into a walking coma for about five weeks <laughs> there were side effects that came although I, I am incredibly grateful for that few those few moments because it kept me alive and it, the coma is what I needed it was like a reset it was like a reset from all the depression I couldn't cry um, there was a floor to my feelings. There was also a ceiling. Um, but then the side effects started hitting after four weeks. Um, I uh, saw things. I had hallucinations. I had blackouts uh, for only four or five seconds at a time. But it was like when I was driving on 294 in Chicago and also all of a sudden I'd be past my exit and not realize. Or I'd be running. I, I ran as much as I could um, every day and... I'd be running down the shore and see Sumatra um, or see myself and another woman sitting next to the water. It was bizarre. And then the dreams, horrific dreams, um, blood, rape. I mean, it was just so I went back to her and said, this is the situation. She said, you stop it today. We're going to try something else. Um, and I went to Dr. Shore for the remainder of time. I was in Chicago. I saw her once or twice a week, um, every week. Um, until I moved here in 2012. Um, one, I re have referred people in Chicago to her. Um, and the mindfulness was the piece that she, she brought. She's the one who brought to light um, my value, how I valued myself or didn't value myself and where that came from. And it was hard uh, to hear it. It was hard to work through it. Um, I can't imagine doing it again. Um, but by the time I moved here six years ago, I'm, I don't know that people would recognize me 
especially not at work. Um, I'm out of the corporate world. Um, I no longer worry about the, the commute. I just drive and listen to music. I don't get upset about um, if one of my iron pans is left in the sink that, with water. I mean, just the things that I would go off on um, aren't there. And I'm calm um, for the most part and understand so much more about myself than I ever did in my life. And now I can see back. And I, I remember a lot of things all the way back to when I was uh, three years old. I have memories when I was three, clear memories. Um, and not just like memories of, oh gosh, I remember that. It was more like I remember how I felt. I remember um, physical pain, fear. I mean, I remember those things clearly in situations. Uh, and I can deal with them and I can talk about them. So that's where I am now where I'd like to be. Well, talk a little bit more about who you are now, because the person I know and have gotten to know for the last few years is not that person that you were at all, other than I'm not going to drink because I know what it will do to me. I'm not going to, like, you've made it clear what the boundaries are, but you're nothing like the person you've described. You're remarried. You have a son. Um, you have healthier relationships. You have existing relationships from, you know, your family and other things. Can you talk a little about who you are and how you deal with those things today? I think understanding that that I am the opposite. <laughs> it's like that Seinfeld where it's the the opposite George. Mm -hmm. Remember that episode where he's, he's, if this is the way I feel, then I'm going to act the opposite way and things will go right. I am, that's the way I, I'm the opposite Matt from, from before because things don't upset me for the most part. Um, I mean, things like um, some shit that happened at work or or my son is acting like a dick, or, <laughs> you know, somebody cut me off in traffic. It's just things that happen during the day have zero effect on me for the most part. Um, everybody has emotions they deal with, and everybody has uh, grumpiness and those types of things throughout the day, how much caffeine I have. Um, but I'm a small piece. I'm a very tiny piece in what takes place in the world which is the opposite of the way I felt before. Before I thought everything revolved around me. The point of living was for me to get the things I wanted. And I don't want that. I want others to get what they want. Um, and I just want to be happy with some, some average things. Some <laughs> I like a good cup of coffee and a great song over good speakers. That's awesome. I like to go for a run. And, and um, I'm not even worried now when I run about winning. That was another thing. <laughs> I ran hard, trained hard, so that I would win <laughs> races that I was in, not, not specifically, you know, for health or for mindfulness. Or, um, so those pieces, I've reformed relationships with my family members um, because I don't have to be petty. If There's this thing that we call uh, the Roush grapevine in my family where uh, Catherine, Catherine, something happened to Catherine. So... 
Nobody, Catherine didn't tell anybody, but Deb heard about it from mom because mom saw it happen. And then mom told Carl, and I don't talk to mom as much as they do Carl, so Carl told me. Um, that doesn't bother me anymore. <laughs> it's not about me. If Catherine didn't want to have a conversation with me about it, or if she's had 10 and she doesn't feel like having anymore, I don't have to know first. Um, so there's a lot of things there that it's a lot slower. My life is a lot slower than it was. You said you have something in your DNA, an addictive personality, whatever that is. I imagine that didn't get switched off. It didn't. It's there. Is it something you manage or is it something you redirect? Like, I know you drink a lot of coffee now. Not 20, 30 beers worth of coffee. But, <laughs> but you know, have you redirected these, this addicted personality into other things that are more wholesome or better for you. You mentioned you like seeing other people be happy and succeed. Like, have those become addictions? Um, there's a couple things that I do both. I, do, I redirect and I manage. Um, uh, I'm in a, I, I work in a place where alcohol is free-flowing, uh, and there's a lot of things that I remove myself from because it's not a good idea. Um, Because I'm, I still have this. Uh, I have still have this fear of myself because I know what I can be. So, I might think, you know what? Fuck it. I can have a beer. I mean, everybody else drinking. Remember how much fun that was. <laughs> so I remove myself. I don't go to going away parties um, that that they have here. I don't attend a lot of functions. They love the holiday party. I don't go for half an hour. Um, because I don't. I don't need to be around that. That's not, it's not my scene, man. It's not what I do. But there's pieces that I will absolutely, I have to distinguish between an obsession and an addiction, and they could probably all be housed together. Um, smoking, for sure. Um, I haven't smoked in years, but man, I like smoking. And I liked it, it turned out, because it's just another form of slow suicide. I didn't recognize that until I talked to Dr. Shore. And when I'm feeling down, um, when I'm feeling angry at somebody for something, and I say I don't, but of course that shit happens. I'm feeling resentful. If my wife does something that pisses me off because I can't see it clearly or see her side, I'll want a cigarette. Hmm. Um, How many cigarettes did you smoke when you were smoking? Um... Two packs at the most. Um, a day. A day. It was Paul Malls, though. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Filterless. Oh, as bad as it gets. Yeah, there was like DTs when I quit cigarettes. <clears throat> so, uh, to get back to your question about um, managing how and I manage it. So, I, the one thing is I manage it. Second, the redirection is still running. Running is... Uh, it's just awesome to me. I, I I can turn up music as loud as I want um, and just let go. And I can zone out, which is wonderful. Um, I can zone out for 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> just, uh, there's a dog in here drinking water in case you're wondering what that sound is. Um, and just be free. It's just and after and afterward, the endorphins that come with you know run running um, are amazing. Um, and I don't feel like I I don't feel like I can um, I feel like I can limit it. 
I don't have to run 10 miles a day. I limit it. So if I'm on a treadmill, I can limit it to five miles, 500 calories, or 30 minutes. That's what I'll do on a mm-hmm. treadmill. Um, and that'll be, and that's what I'll stop. Um, not only because um, I don't need to be uh, the best at that, but also because there's other things I'd rather be doing. I'd like to watch TV with my wife or go putt around the, the golf course with my son. Um, there's just other things that I would, I think are more beneficial to me. So there's redirection and management both for sure. Now tell us who you are becoming. This is obviously a work in progress. Where are you heading and what are you doing to get there? I think understanding, understanding what I can be, knowing what I was, knowing that I can be that, is always present. Also, I use my father as an example. Um, and sometimes my brothers and I, who, my brothers also have sons, and they'll text me once in a while. Do you ever feel like dad when you say this? Um, so approaching any form of discipline for any of the three of us boys um, is scary as hell with a child. Uh, and we'll text each other. Um, or we'll hand it off to our wives to say, I'm out. <laughs> Without any knowing internally and knowing among the three of us that I don't know that we have potential. None of us are violent. Um, but it's just so scary to get that close to it. So since I know what my father was uh, and I know what I was, um, managing that every day is essentially how I live. And that's every day. So it isn't like, you know, in five years, I want to be like this. It's more by the end of today, knowing the state of mind I'm in right now, which is managing my annual depression that happens in the spring, um, managing it with drugs, managing it with exercise, with removing myself from keeping my door closed to my office more. There's a lot of things there that I, I just don't need to have the type of interaction. Um, that, for me, is long-term, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Nathan will be, Nathan's in seventh grade, so he's not going to be out of, out of high school for another five years. Um, so I don't plan on, what am I going to do when I retire? Or uh, where am I going to live in 10 years? You know, we have those conversations at home, but it's not, um, it's not really goal-oriented. And so I don't think about the type of person I want to be so much as, or want to be in the future so much as, what, what do I want to be today? How do I want to manage me today so that it will best affect others <laughs> that's awesome sense? yeah okay. are you do you feel equipped after all this experience do you have enough knowledge do you have enough tools techniques to to keep growing or are you seeking things out i seek out things regularly i still go to aa meetings every week uh, and it's not always the same meetings um, because there's so much knowledge from these folks in this room that have gone through um, it. They don't even have to be similar. It's um, You relate to what you see in these meetings and hear in these meetings. You don't compare like, oh, gosh, you were much farther than I was down. The-. That's, that's it's not an effective way to, 
to learn. So I am regularly having conversations with these these folks um, on things that happen every day and things that we can laugh with as a group to think, holy shit, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, what would, what would have come of that? Um, and I don't, I don't, that's an interesting question. I don't think I ever feel fully equipped or fully knowledgeable. Oh, that's, I got that, I got that licked. I think that's what probably would get me into trouble if I did, if I decided to think like that. Um, I really like to laugh and I really like to not take things seriously. Um, and others that take themselves and the things that they do really seriously, um, are a source of laughter for me. <laughs> um, I don't know if I answered that thoroughly enough. No, that's fine. Okay. Is there anything else you would like to communicate, perhaps to anyone listening, who may be trying to go through a personal transformation? There's always things you think of that, gosh, if I would have known this then... Um, Alcoholics have this, uh, one of the things alcoholics seem to have in common is being right. Um, and being right can be anything from um, how to manage people in a workplace to um, I understood that correctly what my wife was asking me or what she was telling me or how she feels about the argument we just had or where the sofa should be in the living room or if we should have an electric car. I mean, these conversations, there's so many different sides that you can't, you can't listen enough. I would, if I could somehow, I don't know that I would have gotten healthier earlier. I think it, I took the path I took and I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't take that path. Um, but if I saw somebody that was 22 or 23 and they were just getting sober, um, or if they were hitting a depression at 30 or 35, I would be able to at least listen to a lot of what they have to say and empathize um, and let them know, this is what I did. I don't know if it would work for you, but know that you have to talk about these things. I can't, I can't express enough having a relationship, having personal relationships with people, not just outside of work, but at work, um, allows you to see the humanity of folks you work with. It allows you to, it, it was so much, my first job at the bank was collections back in 91. And it was all on the phone. Um, how unpersonal is that? And I remember the first day my, my boss to train me said, this guy owes $400 on his car. It's this far past due. This You can see it right here. Dials the number and hands me the phone. Said, ask him for those three payments. <laughs> I learned that I could say whatever I wanted. <laughs> the person's not even there. It's just a voice on the phone. Um, I could be as forceful or as direct or whatever I wanted to be. Um, that is not the way to build a relationship with someone. And it's not the way to manage people at work, too. It's not the way to manage relationships you have. Everybody has shit that's going on, and their shit and your shit is just as equal. Your shit's not more important than theirs. And you, everybody's in the relationship. We're in a canoe, and some people are paddling sometimes, and some are just riding along. And it's, I, would, I, I don't know how I could convey that to myself, because um, I, I, I thought I would be full of shit. You've, you've still referred to yourself as an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Are you always what you uh, once were, or is 
alcoholic kind of a label that helps you to manage it or like you haven't had a drink in 25 years 25 years but you're an alcoholic Mm -hmm. can you explain that a little bit sure well there's medical (laughs) there's there's medical research on it it is an addiction it's a it's a disease um and it is in your brain and um this is the way that you're wired it's hereditary um so there's medical proof of of it being a a disease but there's also the other things that come with the delusions of grandeur that people can um obtain especially under the influence of whatever um that it no longer the the addiction itself is just a label it doesn't matter how i felt the euphoria of being in complete control i am god after you know 12 or 15 beers that was the only time i could get it and then you know it's unreal it's it's inebriation it's it's not true um um so it yes i'm an alcoholic it um it's something i say every single week at least once usually several times um do you remember the all hands we had that i (laughs) it's not a secret for me um and i have a lot of fun with it and we had an all hands here the entire company meeting not long ago and i stood up in front when it was my turn to speak and i said hello my name is Matt and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, wrong meeting. And you could see some folks laugh and others were uncomfortable. And then you had several in the audience who said, hello, Matt. Because that's what you do in the A meeting. <laughs> hello, Matt. <laughs> it was very entertaining for me. So I have to remind myself of that all the time. Um, there are days I go without thinking about alcohol. Um, but there's also times that I think holy shit, I should be thinking about alcohol. Because there's a whole fucking cupboard full of vodka in the kitchen. <laughs> I can't look for chips without seeing some booze somewhere. Um, so I have to think. It has to be right there. So I think of it as part of my nature. Yes, my name is Matt. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I don't have control. Very interesting. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. It's very powerful.